tonight we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 19, so if you could, uh, let's turn to John chapter 19, but we're going to be talking about a few things before we get started, and that is um, what Good Friday is. You know, when we think of Good Friday, uh, it's good for us. It's good for us, and it's good for us uh, for two reasons. Um, or it's called Good Friday for at least two reasons, I should say. The first one is because, because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, we no longer have to be separated from God from eternity for eternity. Um, it's good because of that reason. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we don't have to be separated from God for eternity. Jesus paid the price, so it was good for us because of what He did. It wasn't good for him at the moment because he went through things that we can't even begin to understand. And certainly not to diminish the, the physical suffering of the crucifixion because what Jesus went through physically was horrendous. It was horrendous. There's no doubt about it. And we're going to be looking at some of those things tonight, not to bring guilt upon us, but to look at the reality of those things. But also what happened behind the scenes that nobody could see. Um, you know, he died for us, um, and his soul was made an atonement for our sin. I mean, we, we can't understand the idea that he bore our punishment on the cross. No other human being has ever done that. Uh, thousands of people throughout history have been crucified, and as horrible and as torturous as that is, not a single one has taken the sin of the world upon themselves and their soul becoming an atonement for our sin. Nobody's ever done that. Only Jesus Christ. And that's what makes tonight, that's what makes this day so significant because of what he did. Not just in the physical, but in the spiritual that nobody could see. Um, though that's the most important part, actually, uh, is what happened that nobody could see. And so we will look at that. And if you think of it, this gift that God has given us is his son. You remember John 3.16, it's a favorite verse of ours. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would believe in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. The idea is that God the Father gave Jesus his Son as a gift. In fact, that's what Jesus' name means, Jehovah Shua, God's salvation. So he is a gift to humanity. And he is, his salvation is offered to anyone who is willing. And I want to ask you tonight, before we even get started, especially for those of you who maybe uh, haven't given your heart to Jesus, to really consider that this evening because He paid the price for you, and, and that, that includes you, and He loves you, and He demonstrated it on the cross for us. And so we know that He is the perfect gift. He's the perfect sacrifice. And I love what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. It's one of my favorite verses. It says, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love what Paul said at the end of that verse, actually in verse 11. He said, therefore, comfort one another with these words, or comfort one another and edify one another. And that's something that we definitely need to do. We need to do. He hasn't appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And so we need to consider that. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it also says this, that God has not appointed us. Um, I'm sorry, wrong verse. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, uh, but, is, but is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God is um, hes very patient toward us, but He's not willing that any should perish. And so that's why today 
is so significant of a day for the Christian because this is the day, the, the, the memory, the, we commemorate that day, we honor that day because of what happened on that day. It was so significant, so significant. And so, and it's also Good Friday for another reason. It's good for another reason, and that is that Jesus, uh, even though he suffered in many ways that we can't even comprehend, he did it for the joy that was set before him. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, we know this. Um, the writer of Hebrews says, Looking unto Jesus, he said, The author and finisher of our faith, notice who for the joy that was set before him, notice he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so it wasn't something that was easy. It was something that uh, he endured the cross, and he despised the shame, because Jesus has never experienced uh, that kind of um, agony uh, certainly physically, but also he's never been separated from his Father at any time in history. In, in eternity, it's never happened, but it happened on this day. It happened from here at least until, as much as we know, until the resurrection three days later. And so it is significant. And he did this to redeem himself a bride, you and me. He purchased us with his own blood that we might be reconciled back to God. In fact, I love what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says that we are God's workmanship, meaning that we are His poema. That's the word in the Greek for workmanship. It's, it's the capstone. It's We are the thing that He really loves more than all of His creation. He loves man. And that's why He went through such great pains and great acts to redeem us unto Himself. Because otherwise, we'd be hopelessly lost but isn't it wonderful that we have, for those of you who have given your heart to Christ, you are, we were lost, but now we are found. We are found. And, and maybe there's some of you listening in uh, this evening, maybe you are lost. Are you lost? That's a good question to ask. Am I lost? Am I in this place where I haven't given my heart to Jesus Christ? Have I been playing games with him? Am I lost? And, and the second question is, do I want to be found? Some people don't really want to be found. They like to hide. They like to hide in their sin. They like to hide away from people. They like to hide in their jobs. They like to hide in their careers. They like to hide in their hobbies. And sometimes they like to hide physically. But we don't have to hide. There's no reason to hide any longer. Even as a Christian, there, there's, there's some Christians that I know who still like to hide, even though they're, they're, they're a blood-bought believer. And so let's not be that way. Let's come into the light and walk in the light as He is in the light. But do you want to be found? Because Jesus' crucifixion was the greatest act of worship the world has ever seen. There has never been an act of worship more poignant, more, more uh, uh, empower, powerful, and, and more significant than what He did on the cross. And you know, as often as we'd like to think that he did it just for me, like the song that we sang, it is true that he did do it for us, but initially he did it for his Father. He did it as an act of worship to him because God had lost a whole bunch of people through sin and rebellion, and Jesus uh, paid, for the, paid the price for us so that he could reconcile a bride, a, a, a group of people for his Father. And there's no greater love than a love that's volitional, meaning... I love because I choose to love. It's not something that I have to do. It's something that I want to do. And that's why the power of the cross is so significant because the Bible says that while we were still yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And that is significant because 
if I would, if I was God and I knew what the world would do to me, um, how they would treat me, even after I went to the cross. I mean, think of it. When he went to the cross, the, he was deserted. Even his disciples deserted, deserted him, and only a few looked on from a distance. And so he was despised and rejected, not only by man that he came to redeem, but he was also uh, he was uh, despised, and in a sense, he was uh, he was rejected by his own father, the one that he has always known this unity with ever since, well, it's forever. It's always been that way. So it's not been something he's, he's understood. So this is significant. And this redemption did not happen by mistake. It was planned before the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it says that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And that's significant because before Genesis 1 verse 1 said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, before that verse there was already a plan in place. Before the creation story unraveled uh, the, the, the event of, of, of creation, there was already a plan in place to save man. Because whenever there's a choice, there is always the need to provide for a atonement. Because God knew that we would choose rather, at some point, we would rather choose sin and the pleasures of sin rather than be obedient to Him. And so that's why it had to happen. And, um, and so why did Jesus have to die? Before we get into our text uh, this evening, we have to answer, you know, there's some answers to this question. Why did He have to die? Well, He had to die to redeem man from his sin and the punishment because of it and to restore man's relationship with God. That's number one. Number two is that He had to die that man might have everlasting life with God rather than be separated from Him. That's number two. Number three is God's holy standard being broken by fallen man. God's holy standard being broken by fallen man required a perfect and holy sacrifice. That's why he had to die on the cross. There was no mistaking about it. It was not a mistake at all. In fact, it was premeditated. It was, it was known before the beginning of creation. And so, and also, why did he do it? Is he... He also, because He was God in the flesh, He was the only one who could, by His blood, take away our sins. And so, we're just going to look at a couple of these things. The first one is that God's standard uh, is perfection. And that's why He had to die on the cross. You know, Jesus was the only one to pay that penalty. No other human being, no other guru, no other prophet, no one has ever made the claim to take the sin of the world upon Himself other than Jesus. Has Allah done that? Has Buddha done that? Has Confucius done that? Has Jim Jones done that? Has David Koresh done that? Has um, any, any guru out there, it doesn't matter who it is, no one likes to talk about the sin issue. And that's why, again, today is so significant. Because the sin issue had to be dealt with. In order for us to be reconciled, there had to be a, the death of an, of, of an innocent to cover us. We, we deserve to die, but thank God because of Christ, He died in our place. And because He was the perfect and holy sacrifice, God received it. And see, the world religions focus on what you can do for it, but Christianity is the only re, re, um, religion, if you will, in the world where God has done everything for you. 
He has died on the cross for you. He has given His Holy Spirit. He has gone to prepare a place for us that soon He'll come back for us. He's done everything. All we have to do is believe by faith. And we have to die to ourselves, of course. And that's the hardest part of it. He did all the dying and we get, the reaping, we get to reap the, the wonderful rewards of that salvation. So our salvation could not be by any work that we do ourselves. In fact, in Ephesians it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Why? Because it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And when you think about it, a gift is something that is given. A gift is something that is given. And so it's not something that you earn. I don't earn a gift at Christmas time. Um, I'm given a gift by grace from somebody who loves me, right? And so, and also in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says that God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, was, which was given to us in Christ, notice, uh, in Christ Jesus, before time began. I love that. that. That's such an encouragement to me. And because and God is holy. And, and that's one of the things, uh, the reasons Jesus had to die. Because God's perfection, He demanded a perfect sacrifice. And there was no one else who could do it. In Leviticus, God said to the children of Israel, He said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy, God says. And that's quite a, a difficult thing, because we are fallen man. In the garden, we know that man fell, and ever since then, we've been in rebellion against God. And the only way that we can be reconciled is to be saved, to be born again. And we do that through faith in Jesus Christ alone, nothing else. In fact, the verdict against man is pretty stiff. It's pretty ugly. The Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And even the Ten Commandments, these things were given to us. Uh, not so that we could be right with God, but to prove to us that we could not uh, do these things. And so we needed, um, in fact, the law was, it was a tutor. In Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 24, this is what it says. Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, Therefore, the law was our tutor or our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, not by works, but by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so, and there's another reason that Jesus had to die, and that was because his blood was the only blood that was able to pay the price. If you remember on Christmas Eve, I shared a message about the blood of Jesus Christ and how it was very unique. We know that Jesus came through uh, Mary, the, the physical vessel of Mary, but who uh, impregnated her, who planted the seed in her womb. It certainly wasn't Joseph, who was also from the line of Judah, along with Mary, but it was God the Father who placed that, that seed in her. And, and therefore, the blood uh, that he had was the very blood of God. There was no blood of Mary in Jesus. There was certainly no blood of Joseph. He was born through her physically, but he had the very blood of God coursing through his veins. And so, what does it say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18? It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but notice what he says, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And that word precious is very precious. 
<laughs> and the reason it's precious is because it means, literally, it me, it's, it's a Greek word, timios, and it means valuable or costly or honorable. And so there was no other blood like his blood. When it, when it hit the ground, there was something about that blood that God says, that is the only thing that I can look upon and I can say amen to. And that his, so Jesus' work on the cross was significant. So we're going to be getting into our text uh, this evening, but before we get into it, I just want to give you a little bit of background because if you remember, the Last Supper was something that the disciples and Jesus, they enjoyed on that Thursday evening. The Thursday evening, which was last night, they enjoyed a, uh, a Passover meal. And during that Passover meal, remember Jesus did something that no other Passover had ever done before. Even going back to the night before they left Egypt, um, when they were in, uh, in bondage to the Egyptians, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And the disciples are probably looking at each other, even though he had told them at least three times up to that moment that he was going to the cross, that he was going to pay the price, that he was going to be um, uh, falsely accused and, and, and be crucified and to be killed. And then on the third day, he would rise again. He's told them that three different times in Matthew. And we read about that. And so there they are in the upper room. And then he, after he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He took the wine and he said, now everyone take some of this. This is my, my blood, which is poured out for you. And, you know, and so Jesus told them in advance what was happening. And there were many things that happened in that upper room that night. In fact, if you look at John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17, that really encapsulates everything that happened in that upper room prior to Jesus and his disciples going into the Garden of Gethsemane just to the east of the Temple Mount there. And so, and in John chapter 18 was the arrest of Jesus and Gethsemane. And that's where I'd like to pick up tonight. So if you could turn to Luke chapter 22, we're going to pick up at verse 39. Now, tonight we're going to be uh, not necessarily going chronological, but there will be some chronology involved here. But I'm going to be skipping over some things uh, because I, I really just want to zero in on the most important things, or uh, the important things for us tonight anyway. Everything in the Bible is important. But because of how much time we have and uh, what tonight signifies, we're going to be a little more poignant. So, Let's look at Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. So it says, coming out, so now Jesus and his disciples, they have, they've, they've left the upper room, and now they are going to, uh, it's, it's, it's late now, it's probably close to midnight, or getting close to midnight. So they come out of Jerusalem from that upper room, they go down east, and they go down from the uh, Jerusalem, they go into the Kidron Valley, and then they go up into the Mount of Olives, and there's a place called Gethsemane. It literally means olive press, and it's a, it's a place where there is olive trees, and it's a really wonderful plush area, and, and, and is still that way today. And, and Jesus liked to resort there with his disciples. But notice in verse 39, it says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, and as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, 
not my will, but yours be done. And the cup that Jesus was referring to was the cup of wrath that God was going to pour out on his son. And again, this is the kind of wrath that nobody could see with the naked eye. The Romans and the Jews, so the Jews and the Gentiles, they poured out their wrath on Jesus. That was something very visible, very horrid to look at. But this kind of cup, this cup of wrath that God was going to pour out would be something that nobody could see with their eyes. It would be something that would happen in the, in the spiritual realm. And it was signified by miracles following because of what happened. Jesus taking that, but, uh, that, the price for our sin of the whole world. But notice, he said, Not my will be done, but yours, yours be done. And it says then, verse 43, An angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and other gospel accounts tell us that he did this three times. Three times. And the same prayer, three times. And you know, there's nothing worse than when we go to God and we pray the same thing over and over again, except when it's done with true desperation. When we are truly desperate as Jesus was, he was begging, in a sense, Lord, Father, if there is any other way, And Jesus, of course, knew that there was no other way. There was no other method. There was no other way for this to happen. He had to take that that, the cross. He had to take that punishment. And notice what it says. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, you can take that as uh, some kind of simile, if you would like. Um, But it's very possible that Jesus encountered a medical condition called hematohydrosis, which is a fancy name, medical name. And what that is, is when a person is under severe fear or stress, um, there are tiny blood vessels in your capillaries that can burst and the blood can come through the, and exit through the sweat glands. And so that happens. It's very rare, but it, it can and does happen from time to time. And usually when people are on the verge of death or facing death, that that sort of thing can happen. And so it could be that Jesus uh, suffered this condition because certainly he wasn't looking forward to the crucifixion. Uh, That was a horrible thing. I'm sure that he had seen uh, Rome condemn and crucify many other uh, malefactors, many other criminals. Jesus saw it with his own eye. He, He was very aware of what was coming. But let me suggest to you that what was coming physically was only half the story, probably a very minute part of the story, actually, because of what, again, nobody could see. And this is one of the things that I think Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, even though it's very, it's very graphic and it's very horrible, it's very bloody, and I've seen the movie myself, but one of the things that Mel Gibson could not do is show what happens in the heavenlies, what was happening spiritually with the judgment of Christ. That's something that he could not do or chose not to do um, because that was the significant, the most significant thing. So it says, When he rose up from prayer, in verse 45 of Luke 22, And when he had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The temptation would be to flee, uh, certainly to flee, and that's certainly something that they did do. In fact, when Jesus finally went to the cross, he was abandoned by everybody. And uh, Peter, his uh, most beloved, uh, well, John was his most beloved, I guess. But uh, Peter, uh, who boasted great things, was the one who uh, 
actually betrayed Jesus. But of course, Jesus loved him, and Jesus restored him, didn't he? So, after this event, we know that Judas brought the, 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 the leaders and the chief priests with uh, soldiers, and they came to the Garden of Gethsemane there on the Mount of Olives, and they arrested him late in the evening on Thursday evening. And uh, what happened after this was Jesus going uh, to different places, going to Annas first, and then, uh, and then being punished and being physically uh, abused actually there, and also to Caiaphas where he stood before the Sanhedrin where he was ridiculed and falsely accused. And then finally he went to, uh, or not finally, but then he went to Pontius Pilate and then uh, ultimately he went to uh, Herod and then back to Pontius Pilate again. And Pilate didn't have a spine in and of himself. He was more willing to show favor to the Jews. And he got himself caught in a situation where he had to do something with Jesus because he claimed to be a king and there would be no king other than Caesar. So now he had some decisions that he personally had to make. And we know what those decisions were. Now let's go to John chapter 19. It says, so we're going to look at this, uh, most of this chapter. It says, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. The word scourge literally means to flog. Uh, he scourged him. And, and what they would do is they would use a, uh, an instrument of punishment called the flagellum. It was also called a cat of nine tails because it had a leather strap or a leather, uh, it would be something that they were uh, eight strips of leather and they were bound together, and each strip of leather had metal balls and also pieces of sharp bone embedded in those straps. And they would take those, and they would hit um, the person uh, with these things. And, so, and it would really do uh, a lot of damage, not only to the skin, but even the bones, and, and tear flesh, and ligaments, and pieces of muscle. And most people who uh, were flogged by the Romans... Some of them didn't even make it through the flogging. Some of them died. Some of them, their, their bodies were ripped right open. And these are horrible things to consider. But Jesus went through this beating. In fact, we have a phrase in America called the cat's out of the bag. And when we say the phrase the cat's out of the bag, what it meant to the Romans is that they kept that flagellum, this ugly, bloody, nasty, smelly instrument, they would keep it in a bag, and they would keep it there for the next time that they would use it. So when they open that bag, and it says the cat is out of the bag, so uh, that, uh, that flagellum would come out, that cat of nine tails. And so it was a horrible, horrible thing. And so one of the things that happened by the time uh, Jesus, when he was in the garden, if you remember, and perhaps suffering this, uh, um, this condition, um, uh, hematohydrosis. If, if medically, they tell us that when a person goes through that, their skin is very sensitive and it's painful. And so now take that condition and now we put it into this place where now he is being flogged on already a body that is very sensitive to, uh, uh, his skin is very sensitive and it's already very painful. And so now he goes to the soldiers. In verse 2 it says, And the soldiers, they twisted a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And purple, as you know, is a sign of royalty. And they really did this as a means of mocking Jesus because he claimed to be not only the king of the Jews, but the, the Messiah. And so they did this to mock him. 
And so then they said, verse 3, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. And not only did they strike him with their hands, but the other gospel account in Matthew tells us that they actually uh, had a reed after they put the crown of thorns on his head, they had this reed, and they would strike him on the head with the reed. And obviously what that would further do is take those thorns and drive them further into his scalp and into his head, which would be even more uh, painful, obviously. So now he's probably got hematohydrosis. Now he's um, being flogged and nearly... Um, and you remember when, he w when they were taking him away, when he was walking to the place, uh, to Golgotha, we call it the Via Dolorosa or the way to the cross. You remember his body was so faint um, that he, he, he couldn't, um, because of the loss of blood, and uh, there's a phrase for that which we'll get to later, but he, was lo he lost so much blood that he was literally weak and he couldn't carry that, um, uh, that beam that he was carrying. It was like a 75 to 100 pound beam that he was strapped to that he had to carry, just the, the, the beam on, this, on, his, on his arms. And so uh, it says in verse 4 that Pilate then went out again and said to them, the, the, the crowd, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 27, verse 19, it says this, that while he was sitting on that judgment seat, his wife sent to him and said, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. And I want you to notice how, how the Lord uh, gave Pilate opportunities not to go through about what he was going to go through. Pilate was accountable now on many fronts, his own conscience being one of them. He knew there was nothing worthy of death in Jesus, and now his wife has a dream, and no doubt that was given to her by God Almighty. And now Pilate is quaking in his sandals, knowing that there's something more to this. There's something more to this person. In fact, Pilate and everyone involved in this murderous plot had a decision to make. And they were accountable for their actions. Remember, Judas was accountable in that upper room before he, um, when he already had it in his mind and in his heart to to betray Jesus. Where was his position at that table in that upper room? He was the guest of honor. He sat right to the left of Jesus, and he was the guest of honor. What about the chief priests and the elders of the people? Another gospel account tells us that when they came to get Jesus in Gethsemane, they said, "Jesus said, who are you seeking?" And, and, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And you recall when he said that, the, all the soldiers fell back. There was a revelation of himself such that they all fell backward. Now, if I was a Roman guard, I would stand up and say, I'm done here. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> but they pursued him and they continued. But they were accountable. They were accountable. And what about Pilate? Here, Pilate is extra accountable now because now God even gives her a dream to stop the madness of this man who was really a man-pleaser. And he was a man-pleaser. And Pilate had political aspirations of his own. So then in verse 5, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the, ro and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Can you imagine and I don't know the inflection in his voice when he said, Behold the man. 
because uh, he knew that the Jews had delivered Jesus because of envy. They envied him. And so, but even still, after all the beatings, all the floggings, all the things that he went through, now he's standing before them and he's still able to stand. And most men would die during the flogging or be so weakened that they couldn't even stand. But Jesus was a man. He wasn't this depiction that some artists have of him as some effeminate man who was kind of kind of skinny and, and kind of scrawny. No, he was a he was a he was a carpenter. He he walked everywhere, so he had very uh, he was a, probably a, a, a pretty decent sized fellow, and uh, certainly muscular in his arms and his legs and his back, as most people would be in that time. But remember, he was also a carpenter, so he's used to lifting up rocks and boulders and wood and things of that nature. So in verse 6 it says, Therefore when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, You take and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And praise the Lord for that, because that's the truth. Uh, Pilate had no, found no fault in him. Um, the Jews answered him, Pilate, says, We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. He made himself the Son of God. Now, this is interesting because even though someone claiming to be God who wasn't, it it was considered blasphemy, Jesus was indeed all those things. Because the prophets, remember, had foretold for centuries prior to this, all of the Jewish scriptures, all the scripture that we have in our, in our lap right now, those prophecies of him, they all were found in Christ. They, they were literally fulfilled in him. They should have known this. But because of their own pride, because of their own self-centeredness, because of their own desire for power and prestige, they either had to give up that power and prestige and submit themselves, or they had to crucify him and get rid of him. And that's exactly what they did. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, that that Jesus had made himself the Son of God, which, of course, he was the Son of God and is. So he went forth again into the praetorium, which is um, the judgment hall there in Jerusalem. And he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And I would encourage you to write that down because in other gospel accounts, uh, Pilate interviewed Jesus more than, more than one occasion during this time. And there were times where Jesus was completely silent. When he went and appeared before Herod, he was completely silent. didn't say anything to Herod at all. And, um, and it really frustrated these men. So Jesus not only stood before Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate, but he stood before Herod as well. Turn with me to Isaiah 53 because we would be really remiss if we didn't look at Isaiah 53 tonight because this is one of those prophecies and we're going to read through the whole thing because once we read through Isaiah 53 and as we continue reading in this gospel account, we're going to see prophecies coming to to fulfillment that were made 700 years at least before Jesus was born in the flesh anyway. So Isaiah, writing 700 B.C., said in Isaiah 53, he says, Who has believed our report? Now, as we read this, I want you to kind of store it in your mind because we're going to go back and we're going to start seeing things. In fact, this very verse that we're looking at right now, that Jesus gave him no answer. We're going to see that this was prophesied 700 years prior to the event we're looking at today, tonight. So who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as, and as, a, 
and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing about Jesus physically that was attractive to the average person. All the beauty was on the inside. It was very much like the tabernacle. Remember, all the gold and the holy of holies was so beautiful, but what was it covered up with? Dyed badger skins. And so the outside wasn't that great to look at because what was inside, what was the most important thing? There's a lesson there, isn't there? Uh, we can't judge a book by its cover, you know. And God looks on the inside where man looks on the outside. Isn't that what um, Samuel said to Saul? And so going on here, he said, There's no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. And notice, he is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And surely he has borne our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God. Because that's exactly what happened. Uh, Smitten of God and stricken um, means that God literally forsake he forsook his son on the cross which has never happened before and and that's significant he forsook him on the cross he abandoned him because the bible says that god cannot look upon sin and he saw the embodiment of sin on his son and for the first time in all of eternity god the father turned his back on his son something the son has never experienced ever ever can you imagine i mean i can't even imagine that that, that would just be the most horrific thing. And that's what Jesus experienced. But notice, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. The word there, stripes, as you know, is uh, it's a singular noun in the Hebrew. Because and why, by his stripe we are healed. The very act that God, the one final blow that God the Father gave upon his son was when his soul became an atonement for our sin. Again, the thing that nobody could see with their eyes, but that was the one thing that got the job done, folks. That was the most important part because, again, hundreds and thousands of people have been crucified in history, but no one has done what Jesus has done. And notice what it says in verse 6, And all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Isn't that true? We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on this servant that Isaiah is talking about, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And isn't that exactly what is happening right here before Pontius Pilate? He asked him, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, there were times when Jesus would answer Pilate, but he never even spoke to Herod. Herod would ask him questions, and Jesus wouldn't say a word. And only when Jesus wanted to share something, he would share it. But for the most part, he was silent, just as a lamb is silent before its shearers. Notice, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So Isaiah is saying, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And it wasn't only just for the Jews, but it was also, of course, for the Gentiles. And they made, and, and, and he made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. As he stood there between those two other criminals on the cross, he made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because when they would bury him in the tomb, 
A very rich man named Joseph of Arimathea was the one who bought that tomb and gave it and buried Jesus in that. But he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to literally crush him. When you make his soul, I'm sorry, he has, (laughs) let me back up to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, that is so huge. That is it right there. That is so important for us to understand. He shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That was the one thing that God was satisfied when he looked down upon his son on the cross. He was satisfied. That's why there's no more need for any uh, sacrifice of any animal. There's no more need for that. Jesus died once and for all. The scriptures say throughout the scriptures, a number of places, he died once and for all. There's no more need for sacrifices. There's no more need for animals or anybody else. His was the one. And it says, therefore I will divide, um, I'm sorry, going back to verse 11, but by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I don't know how a Jewish person can read this and then read the Gospels and not understand that this is the one whom Isaiah, through the Spirit of God, was talking about. I mean, this is pretty clear, isn't it? Therefore, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, which he he was, and he bore the sin of many. I guess he did. The sin of the world. And he made intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that what Jesus said before he ascended? He says, I'm going going away, but um, I'm going to uh, intercede for you, but I'll come back for you. Isn't that what he said? So let's go back now to Luke, I'm sorry, to John chapter 19. Let's look at verse 10. And so finally, Jesus before Pilate, after Jesus wouldn't uh, speak, uh, after being questioned by Pilate, then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Can you just see the, the rejection and the, the anger in his voice? Do you know who you're speaking to, Jesus? I am Pontius Pilate. I'm the governor of Judea. I could notice what he says. He says, um, do you know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? I can let you go or I can crucify you. You better open your mouth and start speaking to me, son, because you need to respect your elders. <laughs> right? And Jesus would have none of it. Jesus answered and he said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Notice what Jesus is stating here. He's not only stating that Judas and the religious leaders, that they were culpable in this whole thing, but Pilate himself was in sin. Pilate himself was in sin because he had already flogged Jesus with the flagellum and nearly ripping him apart. Uh, Jesus, at this point, was a bloody mess. And here he is standing before Pilate, and Pilate says, you know, I can finish this, you know, I can crucify you or I can let you go. And Jesus said, you don't have any power unless it was given to you from above by my Father. From above, right? And that is why uh, it was just not the Jews, but also the Gentiles. They were all involved in Jesus' crucifixion. But when Jesus said, um, 
You could have no power at all unless it was given to you from above. Isn't that what Romans 13 says? Let me just read the first verse to you. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I love that because that means that everything that we see, every government that we see is appointed by God, and that's why God tells us to pray for them. Um, and we, you know, we have to be careful because we can get we can get really uh, nasty. We don't have to agree with them, but we should be praying for them, and there should be a respect for them. But again, we don't have to agree what they were doing. Uh, certainly, John the Baptist wasn't agreeing and very uh, quiet about Herod uh, Antipas uh, stealing his brother's wife, uh, um, Herodias. Was he? He, he basically told him he was a man in sin, so he did uh, uh, hold him accountable for that. Let's go on to verse 12 here in John chapter 19. From then on, Pilate, notice, sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, this was the coup de grace. This was the coup de grace because now the Jews are really up in the ante now. Now he's really stuck. Now he can't let him go because now if he doesn't let him, if, if, he, if, he, if he lets him go, he's basically now an enemy against the authority that is above him. And Pilate understood that. And it's interesting how the devil has a cunning way to corner people and box them into a corner. And it takes a real strength of heart, character, and it takes the conviction of the Spirit of God to do the right thing. Isn't doing the right thing harder than, than not doing the right thing? Most of the time, doing the right thing requires a depth of character that God has to be working in. He has to be working in by His Spirit to give us that. But, of course, Pilate didn't have that depth of character. And so he willingly gave in. So verse 13, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat. There's our word bema again. The judgment seat is called the bema seat. Now that's literally what it means, is the bema seat. It was a place where he would sit to pass judgment upon any uh, criminal. And he sat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew it's called Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour... He said to the Jews, Behold your king, behold your king. But they cried out instead, and they said, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Isn't that amazing? They would rather choose a man who is controlled by demons and maybe even demon-possessed himself rather than choosing the Lord of glory that has been prophesied in all of the Old Testament prophets, and even in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, it goes all the way back, and they are going to turn their back on the one, and they're going to embrace one who is controlled by demons. It seems ludicrous, and it is. Verse 16, Then he delivered the him to them to be crucified, and then they took Jesus away and led him away. Notice in verse 17, And he, bearing his cross, and we know that in other gospel accounts there came a point where he could physically not. Um, there, there was a, he was going through such excruciating pain that he was not able to carry the cross any longer. And um, I think it's called hypovolemia. 
It's a, it's a medical term where you, when you lose so much blood, you become weak. And that's exactly what happened when he was on, the, on his way in the Via Dolorosa, on the way to the cross. As he was there with that 70 to 125 pound, uh, 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 I got the name of it, but I forgot it right now. We'll get to it later. But it's a, it's a name for the beam that he's holding. It's just a single beam that he's got tied to his back and around his neck. He's carrying that and he falls down because he's, he was exhausted. I mean, think of it, after, after the, the last supper that they had, that was probably the last thing he had to drink, the last thing he had to eat. And now he's been beat, he's been flogged, he's had the, the crown of thorns, he's been hit with that. He's been, um, uh, he, his friends have abandoned him, he's probably dehydrated, he's hungry, he's weak. And so now he collapses, and we know Simon of Cyrene finishes carrying the cross to Golgotha. Notice, and he, bearing his cross, went to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. This place called the place of a skull, uh, or Golgotha, it is, it is there today. And um, in fact, uh, let me see here if I can do this. I got a picture here, and I'm going to hold it up. And, and this picture was taken in 1900. And this picture right here has a picture of the skull. It's right there, and it lo it's carved in the rock. And this was back in 1900. And right there you can see the likeness of a skull in that picture. And this was in 1900. And those things, um, and that skull is still there today. I was just there a few weeks ago and saw it with my own eyes again for the third time. And what a joy it was to see that it's still there. Something I learned that was very interesting, um, most people think that Jesus was crucified right above the area there, but we've come to find out that he was actually crucified on the ground uh, near there. So that there was no, he was, he was not up on a hill uh, above the tomb, the garden tomb. He was actually uh, to the right of the garden tomb, uh, actually probably somewhere over in this area, right, um, right over in this, in this area, right over here, because here's Golgotha right there, and it's probably somewhere over in this area, which is right now a big parking lot for buses, <laughs> unfortunately. So Jesus was crucified there, but uh, it's also called um, uh, Calvary, and we get the word Calvary from the Latin, which means uh, a skull. And uh, part of it is, uh, comes from the Greek uh, cranium, which means cranium, uh, from a head. And so the place of a skull is really what it is. And there they crucified him and the two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. And, and this is where we get the word. Um, they actually invented a word uh, called excruciating. And this word was actually invented because of the pain that a person goes through on the cross. In fact, excruciatus literally means out of the cross. And that's where we get our term excruciating. It kind of de uh, defines uh, pain to really intense, losing your mind kind of pain. And that's literally what this word means. And the cross was brutal. Crucifixion was 
one of the most disgraceful and cruel methods of execution known to man. It was invented by the Persians. Remember when Haman was hung on a gallows. It wasn't actually a gallows like you and I think of it. It was actually a spire, basically a law, a pole, and they would impale people on it and they would come down on that. And that was a way that they would do that. But later on, um, the, uh, the Romans and, uh, changed and did a variation on that theme and instead began to hang people on crosses. And this, was, this form of punishment was reserved for slaves and foreigners and revolutionaries and notable criminals. Roman citizens weren't allowed to be crucified. Uh, only if they were defectors were they crucified. And the Romans were able to keep their subjects on the cross alive for days sometimes and certainly uh, in some for hours. It just depends on how much time they had and how, much, how cruel they wanted to be to the person. And so this cross would basically be a, 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 a wood pole that would be stuck in the ground. It was called the stipes. And the horizontal crossbar that Jesus carried was called the patibulum. And um, they could uh, prolong uh, the suffering by putting a horizontal block where, um, where he could rest his, his rear end on. Or they could put a block down by his feet if they wanted to. Um, prolong the person's suffering because that would give them some weight to put on to relieve some of the pain. Because when a person was crucified, they were first their arms were stretched out so far that it would actually pull their joints uh, out of socket, and it would be so excruciating. And then they would drive those Roman nails, those five to seven inch Roman nails that were tapered, and they would go right through. Not, not the hand, but they will go right through the bone here uh, where the um, wrist is. And that, that area right there is strong enough to hold the weight of a person. And by doing so, they would hit the medial nerve. And if you've ever knocked your funny bone against something and you felt that real burning and that really uh, uncomfortable feeling, that's just when it gets hit. Now try a nail going through that. Um, and, and smashing it all together or crushing it. And now you're talking about an experience where the term excruciating comes from. Jesus was in great pain as they would run those Roman nails through. And the Romans, they would, um, uh, they would, they would nail him to the cross and they would lift him up and put him on that, uh, that pole, that uh, uh the stipes, they call it. They would put him on there, and there he would remain. And, um, and he could be on there for three to four hours or several days. And they would uh, typically uh, cast lots or gamble for the clothing of the person who was being condemned. And also, as they're on the cross, sometimes they would just leave them on the cross, and birds and insects would, would come and take care of things. And it was a horrible thing. And think about as, as they would hang him on the cross, Jesus, because of his way his body is, he would actually be in, a, in an exhaled state. So in order to inhale, or, 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 or um, an inhaled state, and so in order to actually get a breath, he would actually have to put uh, pressure on his feet, which were nailed into the wood, which is excruciating because there's a nerve right there in your foot, and you'd have to put pressure on that to lift yourself up to to uh, exhale and then and then the process would continue over and over again meanwhile your muscles they're failing and um, your body is going through some amazing amazing things the ligaments and the bones and everything was just uh, freaking out and this is the kind of thing that Jesus would go through
These are the things. So now Pilate, he wrote a title and he put it on the cross and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And so then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was actually on the north side of the city and it's still there today. Again, just visit it just a few weeks ago, and there it is on the outside of the walls of Jerusalem, as it said. And uh, it was written in Greek, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And therefore the chief priests, the Jews, said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, and he said, What I have written, I have written. So he just kind of let it go. And so then the soldiers, verse 23, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they made four parts, and to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from, top, uh, from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it may be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldier did these things. Now the soldiers weren't aware of the prophecy, of course, but they did those things uh, not knowing that they were fulfilling prophecy. And where was this fulfilled? If we go to open your Bibles to uh, Psalm 22, this is a psalm we know very well. Psalm 22, we're just going to look at a handful of uh, verses out of that chapter. We'll look at the first verse. It's a psalm of David written a thousand year, almost a thousand years before Jesus was born in the flesh. Notice what it says. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? There was a point toward the end. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the, in the Aramaic, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And, and, and they thought that maybe he might have been calling on Elijah or something. But Jesus was bringing their attention to this very psalm because there were, thin, there were things in this psalm that were prophesying of, about what Jesus was going through at that moment. Notice, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. It wasn't any mistake, uh, Jesus. He knew what this was about. But again, it was so horrible he couldn't, I mean, it's like we can talk about it in theory, but for him to actually go through it in the physical was something entirely different. I mean, to go through the physical pain and then to know what is yet coming, which is probably the most, the darkest thing that could ever happen in, his, in the history of the world. Do you understand that? It was the darkest, most horrible thing in the history of the universe. Verse 6 of Psalm 22 now, David is prophesying. The Spirit of God is literally just giving him the words. And David had no clue, probably, that he was writing the very words and the things that were, happening to, that were going to happen to Jesus about a thousand years into the future from when he wrote this. He said in verse 6, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. And all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And isn't that exactly what happened in the gospel accounts? With, that they were walking by and they said the, the same thing. Well, let's see if Elijah will come. Let, seeing that he delighted in God, let's see if he can rescue him now. If he's got, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And so here they are ridiculing him. And then in verse 12, it says, Many bulls have compassed surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. And could this be 
Maybe the centurion guards. It could be a, a reference to them. Or could it be the spiritual beings, the demons that, were, that only Jesus could comprehend that were surrounding him at the cross? Could it be? We don't know. But I think it's very possible because the devil was very much involved in this. And certainly he was delighting in every groan and every smidgen of pain that Jesus was going through. The devil was reveling in it like he was, like he was enjoying uh, very sickly every single thing that Jesus went through. Many bulls, verse 12, have encircled me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Notice, I am poured out like water and all my bones they're out of joint. And that's exactly what happens when you're on the cross. Your arm sockets and your elbow sockets, your, your, there's, there's sockets that you didn't even know you had that are now coming out of joint because of the pressure that is put on them because of the excruciating pain you're going through. And one pain is more worse than another, so you have to succumb to the lesser of the pain. And so that's what happened. He says, my heart is like wax. It is melt within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. He was dehydrated. He says, you have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. Uncleanness, have, you've, they've surrounded me. And they've pierced my hands and my feet. And I can count, I can count all my bones. And they stare and they gape at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Just exactly what they were doing. It's interesting, when David wrote this, crucifixion hadn't even been invented. It was the Persians several hundred years later that invented this and the Romans perfected it. How did David know about putting the, uh, the hands and, and the piercing the hands and the feet? Only the Spirit of God. But notice, uh, Jesus said, Now therefore stood by the cross Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. So John, Jesus is looking at John, who at some point comes up with the women, and John looks at her um, and looks at her and then nods his head to John. He says, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. In other words, John, I'm leaving now. You need to take care of my mother. Take care of my mother. He was the eldest son. He was supposed to take care of her. And even on the cross, he was thinking about her provision. And John, as you know, would take her ultimately back to Ephesus. And that's where she would live out the rest of her years along with John, even after the Isle of Patmos and that experience. But notice in verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. And he certainly was thirsty because... Part of losing all this blood, one thing it does is it gives uh, the person a unusual desire uh, uh, for thirst. You're, you're going to be really, really thirsty, and certainly he was. Now a vessel of full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, and they put it on his put it up to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said. It is finished. And when he said it is finished, another gospel account in Matthew tells us that he screamed it. Probably the very last energy he had, he probably stuck his, all of his weight on his foot and lifted up and screamed and said, It is finished, meaning the price has been paid in full. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And therefore, 
because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Isn't that funny? They had this, this, this whole religious experience for God, and here he is standing before him, and they want to make sure that this, whole, this messy job gets done because they got a religious service to do. And, and again, uh, I love the Jewish people because they're no different than anybody else. But it's, and, and this happens in America, in churches all across America. We can go through the motions and we can, we can say that we love God and go through all these uh, external things and yet um, we forget who it is we're doing it for. We forget why we're doing it and for whom we're doing it for. And that's one of the indictments that Jesus gave, if you remember, in Revelation to the Ephesian church. They had lost their first love. They had, they had everything going for them, a lot of really good things, but they had lost the reason for why they were doing it, and it was because of Jesus. But notice, verse 32, Then the soldiers came, and they broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, because they would break the legs of the victim because time was running out. It was getting late. They had to get these guys dead so that they can continue on with their religious observance. Right, So they would break the legs because once you break the legs, all the weight now, there's nothing to support yourself and immediately you would be asphyxiated and you would probably die of a heart attack because your heart would just give out because of lack of oxygen. And so, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now, they would do this to make sure. A Roman soldier had to make sure that the person on the cross, when it was all said and done, they had to verify. They had to make sure that they, the job was done. And so it was their custom to pierce the victim through the right side, right through the heart, on purpose, because that's where the heart is. And that's where they pierced Jesus in. And notice it says that blood and water came out. And because there is a, there's a thing called... Um, uh, para, pericardial effusion, and there's also a thing called a pleural effusion, and that is through the lungs. And it basically what it is is a sack of water that when a person is dying or has died, this sack of water goes around the heart and also around the lungs, and when it is pierced, it's clear in nature, and that's why you see the blood and the water came out. The blood and the water came out, and uh, it was um, certainly D- Jesus... Um, was going through hypovolemic shock all the time since his uh, being uh, uh, flogged. He was certainly, uh, he died from asphyxia, certainly. He was dehydrated. He was going through congestive heart failure. He had this pericardial uh, and pleural effusion with his heart and his lungs, and, um, and he died. And he died on the cross, and that was proof that he was dead. There was none of this swooning theory. Jesus did not swoon on the cross. He died on the cross. He died on the cross. And he who has seen has testified, verse 35, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look up on him whom they have pierced. And this is from Zechariah chapter 12, I believe, verse 10, where... Um, in the future, they're going to look upon Jesus when he comes back. They're going to see the wounds in his hands and the wound in his feet and the wound in his side and maybe even the scars from the crown of thorns around his head. Can you imagine our Savior is going to bear those marks for eternity? We are going to look at him and we are going to see those scars and we'll never forget 
the great price that was paid. And that's what this night is all about. That's what this day is all about. And I love what it says. Finally, we're going to be ending here in just a few seconds. Jesus, now buried. They're going to bury him. It says, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy man, he was actually, we believe, part of the Sanhedrin. He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. In fact, that was the only way you were able to remove the body, as if a relative uh, or, or someone uh, wanted the body. He, you know, Pilate could grant that if he so chose, and certainly in this case he did. But he asked Pilate that he might take away the body, and Pilate gave him permission. And so another uh, gospel account says that Pilate was uh, amazed that he was dead so quickly. And, but the thing is, is uh, Jesus' death on the cross, he was not a martyr. His life wasn't taken from him. The Bible says that he willingly gave his life for you and me. I mean, that to me is one of the most touching, one of the greatest things that anyone, isn't that what the Bible says? It says, greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And that's, isn't that what Jesus did? He laid down his life for us in our place so that we wouldn't have to go through death and certain judgment. Because, and that's why we owe everything to Jesus. That's why he is to be everything to us. That's why we ought to worship him. That's why we ought to give to him. That's why we ought to give our lives to him. Everything we do should be because and for him right? Notice what it says. So Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. And notice another brother was there in the Gospel of John is the only one who mentions this, that Nicodemus, remember in John chapter 3, was the one who came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You can go through all the religious externals, but what you need is a new heart. You need a new nature within you to suppress that old dead nature that you received from Adam. You needed to have the very Spirit of God indwelling you. And so Nicodemus now is converted. He comes. He, it says, Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came. And you can read that in John chapter 3. He bring a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight, because what they were going to do is they were going to wrap him in these, in, in, in these spices. So they would wrap him, and then they put pack it with spices, and then wrap it again. And so they would do this. And they would put him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Then they took the body of Jesus. They bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And that garden is there today. And I showed you the picture of it because it was just not too far away from that, that um, he was crucified because there was a main road going through there. It was a main thoroughfare uh, going from there all the way up to Damascus. And so it was a very heavily traveled robe, and people were crucified on that, and it was a signal, a sign. If you mess with Rome, if you're uh, a criminal against Rome, this is your fate. And they would do it. The spectacle would be very poignant. They would, everybody would understand that this is what's going to happen if you mess with Rome. So you better watch your P's and Q's. And, and so that's what happened. So they placed Jesus in this new tomb. Notice, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and that garden is there today. And in the garden, a new tomb which no one has yet been laid. And I've actually been in that tomb. And you walk right in, and you can. there's a little antechamber uh, ante right there in front of you. And you look over to your right, and there are two places where two bodies could be laying. Probably, and, and I think one in the center. 
um, where a child perhaps, but there's at least two in there. And Jesus was laid in there, um, and Joseph of Arimathea had paid for that. And that was probably for him and his wife and perhaps one other person. And, and that's where Jesus would lay. But guess what? That tomb is empty. And we're going to talk more about that on Sunday morning because the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the capstone of our faith, the capstone of Christianity, because the fact that Jesus died was all well and good. But if He did not rise from the grave, then even what we're doing right now is a waste of all of our time because He defeated death and hell, and God showed His... Uh, uh, his uh, his acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice by right, by causing him to be risen from the grave. And not just rising from the grave like Lazarus rose from the grave. No, Jesus had a body that could pass through material. It could pass through uh, windows. It could pass through, or not windows, but walls, cement, and, and rock. It could, it could pass right through as we see Jesus in the book of Acts in the very beginning doing so. So he had a body very different than what you and I have today. And that same body is what Jesus is going to outfit us with when He comes for us in the rapture. The dead in Christ will be, will, be, will be raised first, and then we which are alive and remain will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, and death will be swallowed up. Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Uh, that, uh, Jesus conquered death and hell, and He holds the keys to those things, and He's coming back for us. Aren't you excited? I know I am. And so I want to encourage you tonight, one final thing, is if tonight, you know, many of you, I, I know are believers and we know each other, but there may be some of you who have called in or maybe are watching and I can't see you, and, and maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're listening to all these things and, and, and you're sensing the emptiness of your own life. And that's a good thing. Uh, sensing your your absolute need to be to be saved. I mean, do you want to be in heaven for eternity? And everyone says, well, of course, everybody wants to go to heaven. But the thing that we have to do is we have to believe on the one whom heaven is all about. We have to believe in the one who paid the price for the sin so that we could get to heaven. Because without Christ, there would be no, we wouldn't be going to heaven. And so, it's important for us to confess our sin and to receive Christ. And when we do that, we, we ask the Holy Spirit to come in us. That's what being born again is all about. You know, you read John chapter 3 tonight. If, you're, if this is new to you, and, and, and we've talked about some things that are really hard tonight. I mean, I'll be honest with you, talking about the, the description and some of the physical things that Jesus went through is not an easy thing. It's not. But it's true. And so what are you going to do with that information? My hope is that you will consider very carefully your salvation. Because the Bible says that every human being is going to live for eternity. You're either going to be, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be either, um, every, every human being is going to be raised and a resurrection. Some are going to go to everlasting joy with Jesus, and some are going to be raised to everlasting contempt in hell. And there are two different places. You have to make the decision today, tonight, to make that decision. Say, I want to be with you, Jesus. Everything around me is speaking to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm reading your word and the things that have happened. There's no mistake here. It's all very plain for us. And the very rational, the very... Um, 
understanding thing to do is to, is to surrender to Him. And so will you surrender tonight? Will you surrender your heart to Jesus Christ? Now, I'm going to pray. And um, if you have not made this decision, I'm just going to say a quick prayer. And it's very simple. There's no uh, fancy fanfare. There's no sprinkling of water. There's no pomp and circumstance. This is a very simple thing between you and God. It's a very simple transaction. Lord, your will be done. I'm done with my life. Have you found that emptiness in your life after you've done all the things that you did? I know I have. Been through most things, done many things. Um, and then you get to the end of it and it's like, okay, what's next? And your life is still empty and you're still lonely and you're still hurting and still have the, the gnawing suspicion that you're not going to heaven. Well, you can know for sure. The Bible says that you can be sure that you are a child of God if you would just confess your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You keep calling on Him until you know for sure. And so you keep praying. So pray with me. And if you mean this from the bottom of your heart, then you know what the Bible says, that you are saved. And then you get a Bible. And if you need a Bible, again, we'd love to send you one. If you can text or, or actually email us at office at calvaryrochester.com. Um, we'll put that in the notes for you. Um, email us and give us your name and your address. We'd love to send you a Bible if you don't have one. It's important that you have a Bible because uh, this is uh, God's Word to you. And this is how much He loves you. So... You can be free from the sin, you can be free from the guilt, you can be free and you can have an assurance of God's love for you. And not only is that great for here and now, but you'll also have this wonderful assurance that when you finally die on this body, that unless Jesus comes back for the church before then, you're going to heaven. Your spirit and your, your, your soul are going to return to Him until He comes back for the church. And your body will be resurrected. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And that's, what, that's the joy that we all have, and we'd love for you to have it too. So pray with me if you would, and, um, and we'll, we'll end there. Father, and just repeat after me. Father, I, I confess that I'm a sinner. Lord, I know that I have sinned against you, Father. And I know that my life has been empty, and I have done uh, unconscionable things. I've done horrible things, Father. And I come to you tonight, and I ask that you would fill me Lord, that you'd forgive me for all of my sin and that you would come and take residence in my heart. And Lord, that you'd forgive me for all those things. And even the things that I have yet to do, Lord, your word says that you even forgive us for things we hadn't even, haven't even considered yet, Lord. In Psalm 139, you know our words before we speak them. So please, Lord, would you forgive and would you cleanse me and would you cleanse and heal our hearts, Father. And so, Father, um, and Lord, I pray that you would... Um, uh, inhabit, Lord, our hearts, and that you'd fill us with your Spirit, Lord. And we believe everything you said and everything you did, Jesus, that's written in your Word, Lord. It's all right there for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd come into my heart right now and that you would save me wonderfully forevermore. And I'd be your child, a very simple child of God, very simple faith and a loving faith, Lord. Would you please take my heart, my life? I just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, if you've prayed that prayer and you were sincere, welcome to the family of God. It is really that simple.